Hello from Gilbert and Tobin. I'm Moya Dodd. And I'm Matt Rubenstein, and this is The Competitive Edge, what you need to know about competition law from Australia and across the seven seas. This week, every port in a storm. We'll be talking to Sarah Lynch, who worked on the Gilbert and Tobin team here defending New South Wales ports against the ACCC. This case arose from the ACCC's long-term concern that when governments privatise assets, their interest as a vendor in a short-term payday might outweigh the commitment to healthy competition in the long run. But so far in this case, the ACCC hasn't succeeded. Justice Jago found that the arrangements didn't have any anti-competitive purpose, didn't have any anti-competitive likely effect or effect, but she didn't even have to (laughs) find that because she ultimately found that the competition law didn't apply to the arrangements. This is a really important case to the ACCC, and it's not surprising that they've now appealed. They do have a particular interest in privatisations, as you mentioned. And this is also another case where they've struggled to make out a likely lessening of competition where that came down to what might happen in the future. And it's potentially narrowed the scope for the ACCC to intervene against either the government or private parties in these kind of arrangements. Sounds like a perfect storm. I was going to say that. (laughs) We'll hear more about that in just a minute. But first, Matt, tell us what's been happening around the grounds. Well, ACCC Chair Rod Sims just spoke at the Competition Law and Economics Workshop that they hold most years with the University of South Australia. Usually it's a bit of a seaside holiday, almost, at the big beachfront hotel down in Glenelg. Nice. But it was cancelled last year, and this time it was all virtual. That's where the big water slide amusement park used to be, isn't it? Was there a virtual magic mountain at the workshop? Yeah, with virtual razor blades stuck on with virtual chewing gum. Oh, stop. That's an urban myth. I hope it was. Rod Sims spoke a bit more about the merger proposals that we talked about last time, and also the New South Wales Ports case we're covering this week, though he might have held back just a little since Justice Jago was there to give the judicial address right after him. So he didn't go overboard, that's what you're telling me. He didn't. He still made his views pretty clear though. And again, he really emphasised this idea that the ACCC shouldn't have to spend all this time proving what will or won't happen in the future in a particular case. It should just be able to point out what's going on now, whether that's a merger or some conduct that might affect your competitors. And that should be enough either to prevent the conduct or at least raise a pretty strong presumption against it. That sounds like it's moving back towards outright or per se prohibitions rather than more of a rule of reason approach where it depends on likely effects. Yeah, and that is against the trend over the last few decades. But there are signs that the trend might be reversing internationally if you look at what the regulators are saying and the kind of laws that are being run up the flagpole at the moment. Mm, The tide is turning. It's a shot across the bows anyway. Oh, it's an ill wind that blows nobody any good. Ah, shiver me tempers. (laughs) Oh, me hearties. This also includes more interest in forward-looking ex-ante regulation, where Mr. Sims again pointed to the specific rules that are being developed for digital platforms overseas, as well as Australia's sector-specific regulation in areas like telecommunications. Mm, We know all about that. Now, the ACCC has always seen itself primarily as an enforcer rather than a regulator, right? Although, of course, it's had regulatory roles. But does this signal a change in the ACCC's approach or even its culture? Like a sea change, do you mean? Maybe they're going about jibing even. (laughs) There is a lot of it going about. And it is a different mindset. When you make ex-ante rules, you really need to engage more with the industry in ways that an enforcement agency typically might not. And it's also useful to have a bit more trust between the parties than you might have in a more traditional adversarial situation. Well, it'll be all hands on deck, I'm sure. It'll be shipshape and Bristol fashion. Shipshape. What else is happening? 
So the ACCC has just cleared Microsoft's acquisition of Nuance, which makes software for voice recognition and transcription. It was the brains behind Siri on the Apple devices, and it's now used widely in the healthcare sector. Healthcare? That's interesting. Is that because nobody can read doctor's handwriting? I think that's actually a big part of it. Microsoft has its own speech recognition software, but it doesn't compete head-on with Nuance's products, and it integrates with Nuance, but the ACCC didn't think it had any incentive to shut out any of Nuance's competitors. So the ACCC has said that it will take a close look at acquisitions in the tech sector, especially if they're acquisitions of nascent or potential competitors. Was this one in that category? In the end, it said no. This was a pretty big deal. Microsoft is paying $20 billion US dollars for Nuance. That's big. Yeah, so it's its biggest acquisition since it bought LinkedIn a couple of years ago. And so the ACCC did take a pretty close look, but it decided in this case it wasn't a problem. Well, Peter Waters always told me that nobody should ever see how sausages are made. So perhaps I shouldn't mention this, but we use an automated voice transcription service when we're editing this podcast, Matt. And it's very good, but the AI clearly hasn't been trained on Australian competition law because it has real trouble transcribing ACCC, which of course we say a lot. We do. We say it all the time. And the machine comes back with the agency, which is kind of cool. The eyedropper C, which is suitably maritime, but a bit weird. And even the atrial policy. Well, I've had the adequacy. I've had theatrical C and they had trouble C. That's great. My favorite is the age wheel C. Oh, it sounds a bit like a poetic version of the future with or without test. Mm, the counterfactual. That's right. And Peter Waters, who's our AI guru, also says that the next generation of voice recognition and understanding will equal or surpass humans. I think when the software can handle ACCC, we'll know that we've reached the singularity. That'll be Skynet right there. Uh, I don't even get that joke. I'm all at sea, sorry. But that interview with Peter is coming up in a few weeks, right? It sure is. It's in the offing, in fact. But speaking of the age we'll see, you have spoken to our colleague Sarah Lynch, who defended New South Wales ports in the recent privatisation case that we mentioned earlier. That's right. It's a complex case, but Sarah really gets to the heart of it. Let's take a listen. Today I'm talking to Sarah Lynch in the Competition and Regulation Group, who spent a fair bit of the last few years defending New South Wales ports against a competition law case brought by the ACCC. Successfully defending, I should say, at least so far, the ACCC is now appealing the Federal Court's decision. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us. How are you today? Um, well, thanks, Matt. Nice to be chatting to you. And yeah, as you said, we had the successful judgment handed down a month ago, so happy to come on and talk about it today. Great. So in 2013 and 14, the New South Wales government privatised first Port Botany and Port Kembla, which it sold together to New South Wales ports, and then later on the Port of Newcastle, which it sold to a different buyer. What was it about those privatisations that really got the ACCC's attention? Yeah, well, the ACCC's always had a bit of an interest in privatisations, especially because they generally involve very important pieces of infrastructure, and Rod Sims in particular, since back in 2016 has expressed concern that governments might try and sell these assets to get the best possible price without having regard to regulation or competition and sort of future impact. So in 2013, as you said, the New South Wales government sold Port Botany and Port Kembla. Port Botany was marketed as New South Wales primary container port, and that was the established state policy at the time as well, that Port Botany would be developed, you'd follow with Port Kembla and Port of Newcastle. So when the government sold Port Botany, it put a mechanism into the transaction agreements whereby if 
contrary to state policy, a container terminal was developed at Port of Newcastle while Port Botany still had capacity and containers were diverted from Port Botany to Port of Newcastle over a certain threshold, New South Wales ports would get compensated for this loss of containers. So that sale went through. And then following that sale, the New South Wales government announced that they were also going to privatise the Port of Newcastle. That sold a year later. Port of Newcastle was marketed as a coal port. It doesn't really have any container trade. It doesn't have an established container terminal. So as part of this sale, What the New South Wales government effectively did was to say that if Port of Newcastle did develop a container terminal and the government had to compensate New South Wales ports under the New South Wales ports arrangement, it would get the Port of Newcastle owner to reimburse the government for that payment. So this was all disclosed in due diligence to the Port of Newcastle bidders. They even had a copy of the New South Wales ports deed annexed to their transaction And that's how it was sold in 2014. So the ACCC, when they became aware of these arrangements, started to look at them a bit closely. And then in 2018, did commence action against New South Wales ports. And they argued that these arrangements had the purpose or likely effect or effect of lessening competition in container terminal services in New South Wales, because they said they were designed to prevent Newcastle from developing a container terminal. And what did the court say about that briefly? Yeah, so we were in the federal court for a six-week trial at the end of last year uh, in front of Justice Jago. And that was quite interesting because it was all prepared remotely and obviously then under sort of a hybrid model in the court with um, witnesses calling in from overseas and an economics hot tub with economists calling in from London and South Africa and Melbourne. So that was very interesting. But ultimately, Justice Jago found that the arrangements didn't have any anti-competitive purpose, didn't have any anti-competitive likely effect or effect, but she didn't even have to (laughs) find that because she ultimately found that the competition law didn't apply to the arrangements. This was because the state government had crown immunity because they weren't carrying on a business when they privatised all three ports. And then also that New South Wales ports had so-called derivative crown immunity. So the relevant part of the Competition and Consumer Act, which was Section 45 here, didn't apply to them either. So that sounds like a pretty comprehensive defence that (laughs) you've managed to run and a great result for the client. Can we just start with the purpose question? You said that the court found that neither the government nor New South Wales ports had a substantial purpose of lessening competition. What was the basis there and what was the purpose that they did have? So Justice Jago said that the purpose wasn't to prevent or protect New South Wales ports from competition. She said instead the purpose was of providing this financial payment to New South Wales ports if Port of Newcastle did develop a container terminal. They didn't want bidders to discount their bids for Port Botany because of this perceived risk that Port of Newcastle might develop contrary to state policy. And she did sort of accept the way one of the economists had characterised it as it being sort of akin to an insurance policy for New South Wales ports. And through this discussion, Justice Jagu did also warn that the ACCC's arguments and submissions could at times conflate purpose and effect. So potentially in some universe or for some set of circumstances, arrangements like this might have an effect of preventing someone or deterring someone, discouraging someone from developing another piece of infrastructure. The court looked at that as well, didn't they, and found that that wouldn't have been the effect in this case? That's right. And that was actually the quite the strongest part of the 
judgment and Justice Jago quite adamantly found that there wasn't any real chance or possibility Newcastle would develop a container terminal, whether or not the arrangements were in place. And that was partly because of the state government policy I spoke about earlier. That was sort of decades before Port Botany was sold. It was always planned to be the primary container port. And then also when it was sold, it was established that Port Kembla would be next and then Port of Newcastle. So her honour found that it was very unlikely Port of Newcastle would develop a container terminal without the support of the state government. And that's because of the multitude of investment and infrastructure required to support a container terminal at a port, including uh, investment in roads, in rail, in distribution centres, everything else that goes to support that freight task. With or without these provisions, a container terminal at Newcastle just would not be economically viable. Container trade in New South Wales is dominated by imports. About 70% of trade is imports. A lot of what we export is empty containers. Actually, we just don't have the volumes. Most of those imports are destined for Sydney and particularly the area to the southwest of Sydney where the population centre is and where it's growing. There's been decades of investment and planning decisions, meaning that all the infrastructure in New South Wales is set up to support that container trade. There's been an investment in road, investment in, in railways, both by government and private investors. Most recently, you had Cube invest $1 billion in a big intermodal centre at Moorbank, which is all connected to Port Botany to support all the containers coming in and out of there. So in light of all of this, she said it, it just wouldn't really make sense for one of these big ships with all of its thousands of containers to call it Newcastle and then send all of these goods and containers back down through Sydney on the roads and the rails where they're all destined for. And this was quite an interesting evidence from all the economists and industry experts that what matters in this big freight task is the land transport costs, and they're far higher than any costs that you'll get imposed by a port operator. So that's what a shipper and a shipping line will look like. So she couldn't see on based on all of this how it would make sense for Port of Newcastle to develop a container terminal while Port Botany still has capacity and all the forecasts are that it will still have capacity for decades. So the insurance policy may not have been that necessary, but it was really just to put everything absolutely beyond doubt that there there wouldn't be even the slightest risk. Absolutely. And Port Botany and Port Kembla sold for $5 billion. So we're not talking about small amounts they were asking investors to put into these ports. So, And at the time of privatisation, because the government themselves still owned Port of Newcastle, they just wanted to guard against that perceived risk that had been raised by some bidders. And as Her Honour actually went through all the sort of documentary records of the government and also the New South Wales Ports Consortium, she found that by the time the New South Wales Ports Consortium put their bid in, they didn't think that there was any risk of Port of Newcastle developing, but were happy to take that payment as a, like I said, as a sort of insurance policy, financial protection. Yeah, but it was found to have had no real effect on competition. No. But all of that sounds like it was a bit academic in the end because of the whole crown immunity issue. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, that's right. So this was the sort of first argument that Her Honour deals with in the judgment. She did go on to look at purpose and effect just in case she was wrong on this issue. 
but she did actually find that the relevant section of the Competition and Consumer Act didn't apply to the state of New South Wales because it wasn't carrying on a business when it privatised the ports. And she made a distinction to say that they were carrying on a business while they were running the ports, but the one-off privatisation, it was giving effect to a state policy and that sort of fell clearly within the ambit of what Section 2A of the Competition and Consumer Act tries to protect. She then went further to say it didn't apply to New South Wales ports either because that would deprive the state of the exercise of a right which it had under the specifically set up legislation for that privatisation. And the most interesting part of the judgment on this is that she had to distinguish the High Court case in Baxter, which involved a contract of supply. And here she sort of had four reasons as to why this was a different case to Baxter. She said, firstly, that the treasurer's power to enact the privatisation transactions was enabled by specific provisions of an act that was set up for the privatisation. She said that statutory power was confined to the privatisation of the three ports rather than just sort of being a general exercise of power. She also found that the statutory authority specifically vested in a minister of the crown rather than the executive at large. And then she also found the sort of key distinction that this was the context of the privatisation of three ports to enact state policy rather than a contract of supply. Interesting. So I expect we'll get into a lot of these issues during the appeal. Where's that up to now and what's the ACCC appealing on? That's right. So the ACCC is appealing on all three key issues. So they're saying that there should not have been any finding that there was crown immunity or derivative crown immunity. They're saying that there was an anti-competitive purpose and they're saying there was a likely effect of a substantial lessening of competition. So that appeal is still yet to be listed. Looks like it will be first half of next year before the full court of the federal court will watch this space. Yeah, well, yeah, we'll be keeping a close eye on everything that goes on um, and hopefully we'll get a good result and be able to uncork the champagne again <laughs> yeah. before too long. Thanks so much for that, Sarah. That's been great. Thanks, Matt. Very interesting. It was. Although it would be remiss of me, Moya, if I didn't tell you that the very first scene in the whole The Fast and the Furious franchise takes place at a container terminal. It's Long Beach, the second largest container port in the US, where some bandits are hijacking a container full of DVD players. This was in 2001, of course, where those were actually valuable items. Who would believe it? All your worlds have come together, haven't they, Matt? It's been a great day. That was a great interview. It really does sound like this might have been the ACCC's Waterloo. Yeah, it kind of was. Though I bet Napoleon wished he could have appealed the Waterloo result. Napoleon? I was talking about Agnetha and Frieda. I know, I was talking about the water slide theme park in the first Bill and Ted movie. Oh, good grief. Watch out for razor blades. But tell us what's coming up in your crystal ball. Well, we're waiting for Treasury to release the ACCC's third interim report in the Digital Platform Services Inquiry. It's Tokyo Drift, if you like, about customer choice and default settings for search engines and web browsers. And the ACCC was due to hand in that report at the end of September, and it's been pretty punctual so far. So we expect the Treasury is pouring over it as we speak. So this report is about if I buy an Android phone, for example, out of the box, chances are it's going to default to Google search and the Chrome browser, that kind of thing. That's right. And most people don't ever change that default setting, which can make it pretty hard for other browsers or search engines to compete. But if you happen to be in Europe, in Waterloo, for example, 
then you wouldn't get a default search engine when you set up a new phone. Instead, you get a choice screen asking you to choose between Google and other popular search engines such as Quant, Ecosia, and even Cesnam.cz. And that's all in response to the European Commission's concerns about Google bundling its own services with Android, which also came with a 5 billion euro fine. Whoa. Well, would I also get a choice of web browsers, like with Microsoft, I guess, an internet generation ago? That was the plan, and Google announced something about that a little while ago, but it doesn't seem to have happened yet. And it may be that search engines have come to replace web browsers in sort of competitive significance. Anyway, the ACCC will be reporting to the government on the Google experience overall and whether a similar approach should be introduced in Australia. And what about Apple? Does it get a pass? It'll be part of the ACCC's report, especially since Apple actually has the most popular mobile browser in Australia, though it's not by a lot. And of course, it doesn't have its own search engine. It famously gets paid billions of dollars every year for using Google as its default. And the ACCC may have something to say about that too. Well, we'll watch that with interest. Remember, you can find relevant links in the show notes, and we've got some great guests and topics lined up in the weeks ahead, including Peter Waters on regulating data and artificial intelligence, and Betty McCutchua on hipster antitrust, and more. Get those flares out. But for now, Matt, it's time for us to lift the anchor, I think. Sail off into the sunset. Singing a sea shanty or something. An ex-anti sea shanty. Oh, God. Walk the plank, man. (laughs) If you enjoyed today's episode as much as we did, please subscribe, leave us a review, and tell your friends. And if you didn't like it, tell your enemies. Till next time, this was The Competitive Edge with Gilbert and Tobin. 